What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 271, The Collected Papers of Sherlock Holmes, and more. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a strong In a world where it's always 1895, it's I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. A podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler. Holmes the busybody. Holmes the Scotland Yard jack in office. The game's afoot as we interview authors, editors, creators, and other prominent Sherlockians on various aspects of the great detective in popular culture. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Bert Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hello and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees, where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, are you calm, cool, and collected? Actually, I am the uncollected, uh, apocryphal Bert Walder. <laughs> well, you're apocryphal in my mind, always. <laughs> apocryphal well, of miracles, actually. What a great, <laughs> what a great movie that was. Yeah. Well, this is going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, we will be speaking with David Markham, who was here previously on episode 199, uh, talking with him about a wide range of subjects because he has a wide range of interests uh, about which he writes and also edits. So uh, we'll have lots of great material to speak with him about, as well as links to other episodes and uh, places for you to go on the web to check out more information. You'll also want to stay tuned after the interview because we do have our standard canonical couplet quiz where you'll have an opportunity to win a copy of one of David's books. And after that, we have Sherlockian news updates. We'll also have links to those stories in the show notes, but you might want to hear us talk about them as well. So stay tuned for a few headlines in the world of Sherlock Holmes. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes for this episode at ihose.co slash 
IHOS271, all lowercase. It'll take you to our website. Make sure you're signed up to get email updates from us there or to get our episode updates on whatever podcast platform you happen to listen to us on. Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of I Hear of Sherlock everywhere. And for our Patreon supporters, there's good news. Not only are the shows available to you ad-free, but now they are also available directly on Spotify. We do have our show linked directly to Spotify for our Patreon supporters. So that's another way to enjoy our show the way you want it. Our Patreon support starts at just a dollar a month. Check it out and see what works for you. Thank you so much. David Markham plays the game with deadly seriousness. He first discovered Sherlock Holmes in 1975 at the age of 10. And since that time, he has collected, read, and chronologized literally thousands of traditional Sherlock Holmes pastiches. As an author, he's written 113 Holmes pastiches and 29 Solar Ponds pastiches. As an editor, he's edited over 1,000 Holmes pastiches in nearly 60 Holmes anthologies. He was responsible for bringing back August Derleth's Solar Ponds for a new generation, first with his collection of authorized pond stories, and then by editing the reissued authorized versions of the original Ponds books. His irregular Sherlockian blog, a 17-step program, addresses various topics related to his favorite book friends. Lee Child says he could be today's greatest Sherlockian writer. And Nicholas Meyer says, Among the best, I must number David Markham, who by this point has written more home stories than Doyle himself. Characterized by unflagging imagination and ceaseless ingenuity, along with felicitous prose, these tales continue to provide what we all crave, more Sherlock. David Markham, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you. Thank you both for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Well, it's uh, it's a delight to reconnect with our guests, particularly when they have even more to talk about. I mean, we can we can certainly have the same people on again and again, but we want the conversations to be fresh and new and interesting. And the thing that struck us about you is you are always up to something new and interesting. Uh, the last time we had you on here was episode one ninety nine. We'll have a. Uh, a link to that in the show notes, but episode 199 was back in, goodness, August of 2020, so three years ago. Um, what's What's been top of mind? What's been keeping you active and interested since uh, the pandemic? Well, um, I've been still involved in a lot of ways in just continuing projects that we talked about, uh, whether it was editing Sherlock Holmes anthologies for both MX books and Belanger books, and also um, just writing more stories to go in those books and books edited by other people. Uh, in my personal life, I changed jobs in October of 2020 uh, to actually, it was my dream job that I've always wanted, but uh, it's also uh, a lot more going on with that job and a lot more brain power. So 
uh, it's been more of a challenge, I guess, to keep the Sherlock Holmes things going while I use so much brain energy during the day at my real job. And what is your real job? What was your dream job? Well, I'm the senior civil engineer for the public works department of my hometown. And um, actually, my original career in my 20s was as a federal investigator for the U.S. government. But they closed our agency. So I went back to school to be an engineer. And what inspired me to want to be an engineer was actually being interested in the infrastructure of my hometown. So uh, it's kind of full circle. I went to school and had jobs with a lot of private companies and then finally got this position with the city, which is the place that inspired me to go back to school to begin with. Civil engineering is it's a wonderful profession. And you're in Alcoa, Tennessee. So how is, how is the infrastructure at <laughs> In Alcoa, Tennessee, is there is I mean, and that's not just a it's not just a humorous question. I mean, when you when you you know approaching things from the standpoint of a civil engineer, you know your time horizon is a little bit different. Your sense of where capital needs to be invested is different. Your sense of technology and how obsolescence is moving along. I mean, what's the what's the nickel summary there of what's on your plate and mind? Well, uh, Alcoa is about 15 miles south of Knoxville, Tennessee, which is the big city in East Tennessee where I live. It's a twin city with a, a, another town called Maryville, Tennessee. Um, Alcoa was started about 100 years ago by the Aluminum Company of America right after they invented their aluminum uh, separation process. And um, so for many years, until after World War II, it was a company town. Uh, then things uh, were allowed to turn into just a regular municipal government. But uh, one of our challenges is that a lot of our infrastructure is 100 years or more old. And so there's a, just a lot of work to do and a lot of budget limits, as you can might imagine, everywhere. Uh, there's projects that we want to work on, but then there's little fires that have to be put out every day. And so um, where I'd worked before in the private industry, it just kind of ended up over, as the years went by, I was a water and sewer engineer. So that's what I specialize in now at the city. And we just have a lot of projects like that, either, either trying to replace uh, old uh, pipes and, and sewer pipes and water pipes or rehabilitate what we have. So, and, and of course, we work a lot with the other departments like the roads and things like that. Well, it's kind of a three-pipe problem, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Three-pipe problem. I like that. Yes. Uh, it uh, it does take more brain power every day, I think, because ne either it's because of that or because I'm a little older, but I uh, come home after work and end up taking a little nap every day. <laughs> have Have you thought uh, or dug into sort of the the infrastructure of London in the 1890s? I, I would imagine that would be irresistible for you. Uh, it is fascinating. I ended up at courses like a sewer engineer, which is not why I went back to school to be an engineer. Uh, but uh, I've been to London three times and I am fascinated with the sewers over there. Uh, it was, I guess his name is pronounced Basilget, Joseph Basilget, but he designed this amazing sewer system in the 1850s and 60s. And he did it so well that it still works today. And I've actually been to able to explore a couple of the outfalls for that system while I was over there. And I've also incorporated several aspects of the London sewers into my own pastiches that I've written. Amazing. Well, while we're talking about pastiches, uh, this is one of the things that 
has always fascinated us about you is that you're not just an editor of pastiches, but you are a writer of pastiches as well. Um, and I think we mentioned this on, on 199, but just give us a, a refresher. Um, when and how did you write your first Sherlock Holmes story? Well, I had always been interested in writing, and I'd kind of done a practice novel years ago that was more like a Robert Ludlum type story. But in 2008, I was laid off from an engineering job at the start of the recession, and I had an idea for one story that was kind of complicated. But uh, in order to write that, I wanted to write a few practice stories first and see if I could get Watson's voice. So I ended up writing nine stories then and really didn't do much with them except put the put them on my shelf in a binder but uh slowly i started showing those to people one at a time and they liked them so uh, they were initially published as a book with the battered silk and dispatch box which is run by dr george vanderberg and then in 2013 um, i had that republished with mx and that's how i met steve mx and from there uh, i just started uh, participating in other projects and then in 2015, I got the idea for the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories, so I started contributing to that, too. And so it just kind of spiraled from there. But uh, it initially started just because I had some spare time because I was laid off from a job. And and now it's it's quite the opposite, isn't, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we can find your, uh, your pastiches in the collected papers of Sherlock Holmes. I think you're up to... What, six volumes now? How many stories is that in total? That uh, Those six volumes have 98 of the stories that I've written. I've actually written 113 with some more promise by the end of the year. So I guess when it gets to around 120 stories, I'll go ahead and pub- publish volume seven. <laughs> wow. And that'll be exactly twice as many Sherlock Holmes stories as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. Yeah, I was aware of that number when I kind of picked that Uh when I was writing them and I started seeing I was getting close to 60, that seemed uh, really like a neat boundary to cross. And then it was getting closer to 100, and now it's uh, more than that. So uh, I don't know how long I can keep doing it, uh, but uh, 120 for sure seems like a good number to shoot for at this point. It is a nice round number, but do you ever find yourself running out of steam, running out of ideas? I don't. I've had a few. I don't know if they were really writer's blocks. But it never lasted more than a week or so. And um, generally the way I write is I don't have an idea. I just sit down and open a Word document and kind of listen for my inner Watson to start dictating. Now, if Arthur Conan Doyle were here, he would say, how do you get your plots? (laughs) Yeah. uh, Actually, what he would say is, help me out here. How do you get your plots? Well, I can't claim to have his plots because... uh, you know, nobody will be reading my stuff a hundred years from now like they are his. Uh, this is just, you know, honoring what he did. Uh, it's not trying to be better or whatever. But uh, um, like I said, my, there are two types of writers, as they always say, the the plotters and the pantsers. And I'm definitely a pantser. Um, sometimes I submit stories to other editors' books, and they like to have... Um, a summary first to see if they're interested in what you're going to write. And that just kills me to try and actually come up with a summary instead of letting it write itself. Those are much more difficult for me. And it it usually drifts away from what I initially told them anyway, by the time the story's done. Have, Have you learned anything new about 
um, and this is also not a not a um, humorous question. You know, when you're when you're in when you have with you on the desk these well-defined characters, and you listen for Watson's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, you you know a couple of things. First of all, you know he's not going to be telling you about Holmes's experience with the Musgraves or any of the existing cases. He's going to be telling telling you something new. So as you're as you're listening to that and as you're building the story over the years, have you learned anything new about Holmes and Watson and about their relationship or about their interests or about their experience? Well, um, of course, you have to be careful, as does every pastiche writer, not to just hijack things for your own headcanon. And I've got some of that in my stories, just like everybody does, but you don't want too much of it. But uh, basically what I always try and remember when I'm writing is just to let them talk to each other. Um, and and when I go back and read it, uh, I try and make sure that they don't call each other's names out in every other sentence uh, you know, Holmes, have you seen this in the newspaper? No, Watson, I haven't seen this. What is it? Well, Holmes, it's a story about a robbery. So um, I try, I've tried to get better as I've gone along at, uh, at more natural conversations and, and flow and things like that. But uh, I try and still keep it pretty much grounded in the canon. Like I don't invent too much like, uh, you know, things that uh, just go completely off the rails. Mm. So, so I feel like I know them better, but I don't know things that a lot of other people don't know. Mm. And what about when you're editing role, when you're editing the work of others, I imagine you must be sensitive to those sorts of things in conversation. Do you go, do you ever go back to writers and say, you know, uh, if well, you, uh, if you cut out all of these references to each other by name, this whole thing might be a little bit better. Um, I kind of am a little brutal about that. Um, one of my favorite editors or what I heard about him was Frederick Denae, who was one half of Ellery Queen. And, you know, he would uh, have to get things done just to get them done quickly because he was doing turnaround for the Ellery Queen mystery magazine. So um, I think a lot of people who submit to me now know that there are things that I'm going to just kind of fix without going over every, every little change or everything. And one of those is to just kind of red pin out all those Holmes and Watson back and forth references but um, when I edit, to me, it's it's not so much about the the people who sent me the stories anymore. It's like trying to make everything sound like Watson. So the stories are consistent, and they also sound like something that would have come out of the Strand. Mm. Mm. So when when we uh, talk about your editing work, that is largely through the uh, the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the last time we spoke to you here on episode 199, you were up to volume 28. Okay. How, how, how have things gone since then? Take us on the journey and what volume are you up to now? Um, right now, I'm finishing up 40, 41, and 42, which uh, the covers are starting to be prepared. I'm finalizing how those books will split it from one big file into three books. Uh, it will probably be sent to the publisher, you know, in a month or six weeks. And then uh, because of the quick turnaround of the new publishing paradigm, uh, they'll probably be available in October or November, uh, one way or another after the Kickstarter, they'll be available on Amazon and different places. Um, when I started these books, uh, I had hoped to maybe get enough stories for one book. 
and and then it turned into three initially back in 2015 and uh, then some people were asking if they could be in the next one and I really hadn't planned on the next one but uh, Steve Emix and I talked about it and we decided well maybe one new one or maybe one new one per year but uh, I get so many stories and such interest that uh, it's ended up being multiple volumes every year and for quite a while now it's been three simultaneous volumes in the spring and three more in the fall which is how it's gone up so fast from 2015 to now to 42 volumes uh, that's incredible yeah it's uh, we're over 850 stories now wow. uh, and, yeah and uh, hopefully they're all you know traditional canonical sound like watson uh, like i said i try and make stuff sound in honor of the original stories so we were talking about your editing sensibilities and your writing sensibilities before in terms of that Watsonian voice. Do you have a kind of an editorial style guide that you share with uh, the authors whom you edit before they submit things? Um, somewhat. There's a, a page that really needs to be updated on the MX website, kind of a submission guide. And it has some of the rules that I require, like uh, no true aspect or no true supernatural aspects in the stories like if there might be something that might or might not have been a ghost but it can't literally be a monster or something like that um, i don't allow any just parodies or uh, any anachronisms or things that just really contradict with the internal chronology of the stories no modern versions or anything like that so that stuff is on the submission guideline um, there's other things that I just see kind of when I'm editing, like uh, the Holmes and Watson too much use in conversation, like I mentioned, or um, uh, I don't know. There's, like I said, things that are anachronistic, like having Watson as a well-published author who everybody knows in the 1880s before A Study in Scarlet was even published, because that just does not fit with the internal chronology. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people kind of do that and you kind of have to nudge them and say well Watson hadn't written anything yet then so you kind of need to change that do you need to educate people on the chronology overall um some yes and some no some just uh enjoy writing the story so much and they kind of forget uh where they've said it uh, a few authors will just I think they just pick, like, I want this story to be in the 1880s, and they uh, don't really think about things that other deeper chronologists worry about, like Watson's wedding or Watson's marriages or when he's published or when he lived in Baker Street and when he didn't live in Baker Street and things like that. Uh, from our last conversation, I remember you talking about volumes that covered certain time frames, and, and you had kind of separated things by era you know uh, pre-world war one you know true victorian times edwardian times etc um are, are you first of all are you still uh following that kind of model in each of these three volumes that come out i do um one thing i don't know if we've ever talked about is like i'm a very deep sherlockian chronologist and uh, I have been ever since I was about 10 or 11 and got Baron Gould's uh, biography with the chronology in the back and suddenly kind of had a sense where the canon stories were supposed to fall in relation to each other and in relation to history. So um, in the, I guess it was the late, I guess sometime in the mid-1990s, there was a book called The Mammoth Book of New Sherlock Holmes Stories. 
and it had a chronology in the back uh, of both the canon and the stories that were in that volume. And that book had arranged the stories in it in chronological order. So I always just really admired that. So when I started doing the MX books and had the idea for it, I couldn't really figure out how to break down the stories. I didn't want to have some that were better and some that weren't as good uh, based on my opinion uh, and uh, just deciding what order they were going to be. So instead I decided the best way and the fair way and the way that I enjoyed as a chronologist was to arrange the stories in chronological order. And so after that, every set that comes out like spring 2022 or fall 2022 for that standalone set I arrange all the stories in it from uh, chronological order from say the 1870s to the 1920s and then kind of break the books into thirds by uh, by size and by where the where the years fall so the first book in that set will be the early stories and then the middle stories and then the last book will be the la- the latter days stories and yeah. it just it's kind of worked out each time did you did you get into building your own chronology? I don't know if you mentioned that or not. Uh, I have. Um, I like I said, I'd always been interested in the idea of it. When I was going back to school to be an engineer back in the 1990s, I decided at that point that I wanted to reread just or read for brand new. Sometimes every home story that I had collected because uh, I was collecting a lot of them, but I ended up just rereading the same ones over and over again. So as I started rereading every one that I had, um, I had made a little notebook that I carried with me that had maps and things like that so I could get a better depth of understanding of the stories. And one section of that was a copy of Baron Gould's chronology. And so I would note where the pastiches that I read fell in relation to those dates. And by the time I got through everything that I had then, um, I had basically a rough chronology of both canon and pastiche. So I cleaned that up and still being in the mood to read about Holmes, I just kind of started over again at the beginning. But this time the first chronological pastiche that I had, which um, I believe was an 1844 story talking about how Holmes' parents met and uh, courted and got married. So that seemed like just a good starting place for the whole complete, vast, you know, canon and pastiche uh, life of Holmes and Watson from beginning to end. And um, I've just kind of maintained that as I've gone along over the years. And now it's, what, 30 years, almost 30 years I've been doing it. So uh, it's about a thousand pages of uh, pretty, pretty dense Word document. Wow. Yeah, oh, impressive. People ask me sometimes if I am, if I'm planning to publish it, and it would need some cleaning up, and I kind of hate to in a way because it would be out of date immediately. And also, when I list something chronologically, I also make notes, and people might not like the notes that I made about their stories. Sometimes, if, <laughs> if I disagree, if I disagreed with them, I tell why I disagreed with them. Have Have you connected to you know the Sherlock? Uh, chronologist group? Are you part of that uh, Brad Kefauver's effort? I am. Um, I think I was one of the first three or four to join, oh. actually. And uh, we all have um, code names, I guess. I'm not sure how to describe it. Uh, our investitures. And it's uh, basically a date uh, that means something to you. Uh, and so um, I'm trying to remember what my date is. <laughs> but uh, And is it true that the members of the Sherlock chronologist guild 
were going to have a Zoom meeting but couldn't agree on the time? Oh. <laughs> I'll let that stand by itself. Wow. <laughs> that's yeah. We, that's oh. true. I mean, chronologists would argue about everything. I've said if there are two possibilities, they'll come up with three answers. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like the Procrastinator Society. They're meeting the day after tomorrow. <laughs> um, that's when, great. When we talk about these different eras um, that we find Sherlock Holmes in, or, or the Sherlock Holmes stories, and as you think of your your own writing in the collected papers, what's your favorite era to write a story in? Um, I Everybody has their own, but I always like the 1880s. Uh, and I don't know why, except it just seems like uh, things were a little more unknown for Watson. He's still figuring out this guy. He's not necessarily yet a part of uh, Holmes's system. Uh, you know, like in, in one of the later stories, Watson says that he's just kind of become another one of the the pieces of Holmes's uh, background. I'm not sure how what the exact quote is, but uh, in the in the 1880s, Watson was still kind of a recovering war veteran, getting over his wounds, and probably at that point he didn't know at what point he would get married and leave. So this was just all a big you know boys' adventure to him in a way. And later it just it became more like uh, this is what we do. This is what Watson does for a job too. He he helps Holmes. Hmm. Have you have you in matching? I mean, you, you've got quite a quite a detailed architecture here. So good for you. I mean, the chronology, the spirit, the time, the place, your own favorite decade in the eighteen eighties. Have you done sort of a mental relationship overlay? You know, Lindsay Fay was, um, you know, in some of her pastiches has has been very thoughtful about the friendship between Holmes and Watson and how that would be expressed differently in a case in the late 1890s versus a case in the, you know, in the mid 1880s and so on. Is that figured into your thinking? It is. Um, and I agree with that. Like it kind of relates to what I was saying. It's like, um, by the time they had known each other in the 1890s, that was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years along. And so they were pretty certain that they could count on or they were certain that they could count on each other. Uh, but there was also some baggage like, uh, Holmes had pretended to be dying in the dying detective. He had uh, really faked his death for three years without telling Watson during the great hiatus. So uh, there was a lot to work out there. Uh, so by the time 20 years had gone by and they'd known each other that long, they their friendship had changed and they really did trust each other, I would think. Excellent. Stick with us. We'll be back after this brief word from our sponsor. The Sherlock Holmes Review is back with articles on Sherlockian film and television, classic canonical scholarship, detective stories, illustrators, collecting, and more. In the latest annual, Curtis Armstrong tells how his love of Sherlock Holmes and acting first came together, how he starred in his first radio series, The Baker Street Theater, while he was still in high school, his encounter with Sherlock Holmes, Hugh Laurie and Lin-Manuel Miranda, when he featured in the TV series House, how Sherlock Holmes crossed into his character in the WB series Supernatural, 
and his role as Inspector Gregson in the audible drama Moriarty, The Devil's Game. The Sherlock Holmes Review is back, combining great design with great writing, welcoming fans of every age and attitude. Get the latest issue, the 2022 annual, at wessexpress.com today. Well, David, let's talk a little bit about some of your other interests. Last time you were here, we touched on solar ponds. We touched on uh, R. Austin Freeman's Dr. Thorndike stories. Um, have you have you made any more progress on those? Any other activities to speak of? Well, um, I can't remember how far along the solar ponds project had gone in 2020. Um, in 2017 was when I wrote my own collection of new stories. And after that, we, um, Belanger Books and I, we reissued the original books with the, in association with the August Derleth estate. And then since then, uh, there have just been a series of uh, other antho- or anthologies uh, with lots of different contributors that uh, either Derek has edited or I have edited. And last year, I came up with a new second collection of my own solar pond stories and there there's more in preparation for that so um i'm glad in a way that uh we got all this going because ponds uh was not well known throughout most of the time uh he was around uh there were some paperbacks in the 1970s where people were kind of aware of him but even those had faded from memory so with this set and these new stories and things like this uh, with these new books being available easily and as audio versions and electronic versions, uh, it just seems much more like Pons is here to stay now, I think. Excellent. Well, that's a good thing. Um, and before we began the show, we got into a, a little bit of an offshoot of a conversation having to do with Nero Wolf. Right. Now, uh, I know William Baring Gould, who was one of the you know the major chronologists that we all know, mm-hmm. um, also had a great love of uh, Nero Wolfe. As a matter of fact, he had opined at a certain point, I think, that uh, Mycroft Holmes was Nero <laughs> Wolfe's father. Um, but talk about how uh, these two interests of yours uh, maybe converged or or perhaps diverge. Okay. Well. Um Let's see. As I mentioned, I had Baring Gould's biography. Uh, I found that, or I was given that, almost as soon as I started reading the canon. So um, it has a chapter in there where, where it actually mentions that he thought, uh, and he wasn't the only one to think this, that Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, and not Mycroft, was uh, Nero Wolfe's father. So um, at the time I read that as a kid, I'd never heard of Nero Wolfe and had no clue what that was. But... Uh, as time went on in the early 80s, there was a Nero Wolf television show, and I started reading the books. And pretty quickly, Wolf became my second favorite um, after Holmes and has remained so up to the present. Um, uh, and what we were talking about before the broadcast uh, was essentially that uh, I had been to New York for a couple of the Sherlock Holmes birthday weekends. And even though I'm there for arguably the biggest Sherlockian event, uh, since it was in New York, my mindset was really much more at the time around Sherlock Holmes and Ellery. Qu- I'm sorry, around Nero Wolfe and Ellery Queen, who are very tied to the New York setting. 
So um, while I was there, uh, I spent a lot of time just exploring Nero Wolf and Ellery Queen sites around the city. Well, there's a lot to explore, except, uh, you know, you're not going to get very far on West 35th Street, which is where the brownstone is supposed to be. But, yeah. but Bill Baring Gould in 1969, he had died, of course. I think his widow uh, published his biography of Nero Wolf, Nero Wolf of West 35th Street, right? which, um, you know, is sort of a companion to Baring Gould's uh, biography of... Um, of Sherlock Holmes, and there are a lot of people who are equally interested in Nero Wolfe and that world in the brownstone in that time in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s mm-hmm. um, with Archie Goodwin and, and Nero Wolfe. And you've, you won, you know, one of the things that, that Stout did was, was um, many, you could call many of the cases of Nero Wolfe novellas rather than novels you know they're sort of short right. novels and they have an annual the um the nero wolf society has an annual contest weren't you a winner of that contest at some point i was uh i think it was 2020 um but uh they obviously they announced the contest and i decided i wanted to write a story so it's not narrated by archie it's actually kind of uh about Lieutenant Rowcliffe, uh, who is kind of Archie's enemy on the New York police force. Um, uh, he's the narrator, and it's kind of what he's up to during uh, one of the Nero Wolf books in The Best Families, and how he kind of interacts with some of what's happening in that book from his perspective. Uh, and it's called A Good Cop, because in one of the later books, uh, Inspector Kramer uh, from those books says that Rowcliffe is a good cop. Hmm. Oh, that's excellent. Is is there the same level of uh, fervor and interest in new Nero Wolf stories as we see about Sherlock Holmes stories? Uh, there's not. Sherlock Holmes is kind of uh, a standalone thing in, in um, the amount of new stories and things like that over the decades. Um, there's a little bit of fan fiction related to Nero Wolf and... Uh, in the, uh, I guess the 1980s, Robert Goldsboro started writing some authorized novels, and he wrote seven and stopped for a number of years, and then he has restarted again. So he's been doing those one per year. But, um, you know, there, there's really not a lot of Nero Wolf stories available beyond those few Goldsboro books and the original uh, Nero Wolf books, which they called the Corpus. Um, there, there, there is interest. Uh, of course, there's the Wolf Pack, which I've been a member of since the 1980s, and um, it has a journal which comes out somewhat several times per year. It's called the Gazette, and it has scholarly articles and sometimes pastiches. But uh, uh, Wolf, just like many of the the Golden Age detectives, he doesn't have nearly the the the, the amount of stuff that goes along with Sherlock Holmes. Well, how sad for him. <laughs> yes. For all of us who are fans, yes. Yeah, right. Right. Well, the the one thing uh, about, I want to get back to the MX uh, book of new Sherlock Holmes stories, um, because I, this is, uh, it's always fascinated me that uh, our friends at MX Publishing, who are a sponsor of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, have been for many years now, um, are very... Uh, purpose-driven. There is uh, usually some kind of uh, charity or 
other kind of benefit to some of the profits from uh, MX Publishing's books. Yes, yes. And this really ties in with uh, your vision for the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories. You talk to us a little bit about Stepping Stones School, which is uh, created from uh, Conan Doyle's old Undershaw residence. But how about an update on how that's going and uh, perhaps any correspondence you've had from them or anything you've heard based on how uh, the MX uh, philanthropy is supporting Undershaw? Okay. Well, uh, just as a little background for people who don't know, uh, before I was even involved with any of this, MX had uh, been involved with raising money and awareness for saving Undershaw when it was about to be either torn down or terribly repurposed in some way, like condos or something like that. So when I had the idea for the MX anthologies, uh, my first thought, you know, I can't take credit for like the, the idea of sending royalties to the school. Uh, I just wanted a book of new traditional canonical stories. But when I talked with Steve MX, we decided uh, dealing with the, paying the royalties individually for each story would kind of be a problem. So what about seeing if people would donate their royalties to the school? So um, we did that and uh, so I was able to go to London on my second trip over there in 2015 when the initial books launched. And at that time, I got to meet people from the school. And even though Steve had told me some of the history and what they did, uh, actually getting to sit down with them and hear the work they did and that they work with special needs children really kind of opened up my eyes about how much good these books could do and, and bring awareness about the school to people that might not know about it otherwise. Um, in 2016, that was when they had their grand opening for the refurbished school in Doyle's Undershaw house. And um, I was actually invited to go over there for that grand opening. So um, I was there kind of representing the pastiche writers and the Sherlockians, I hope. And, and I wore my deer stalker there, around there the entire day. But uh, over the course of the, the years after that, we have raised, I believe, currently over $116,000 for the school, which they have used for different things like uh, refurbishing a room and uh, some communication systems and things like that. And I know you've had Steve Emix on uh, before, but uh, it, he could probably tell you a lot more about what's been going on since then. Uh, but as, as we get more MX books, uh, we get more... Um, more opportunities to raise money for the school and more awareness. And I am in communication with them several times per year because they actually provide a forward each time for the books, just to kind of remind the people what that purpose is for the books. And, um, they've told me again that it's the awareness of, uh, the school that has helped actually even more than the money. But, uh, besides the royalties from these books, of course, MX also, uh, provides funds for the happy life children's home in Africa and, uh, several other projects. And even though it's not really advertised, I kind of think of another aspect of MX's charitable acts is that they, uh, provide opportunities for Sherlockian authors who maybe just have one book in them ever, but it gives them a chance to have their book published so they can proudly show their kids or grandkids or whatever that they wrote a book. And, you know, cause they, 
anybody that would be uh, trying to do the same thing with uh, the old school publishers, uh, that would just never happen. But this is an opportunity for people that they otherwise wouldn't get. Yeah, it's really a a wonderful thing that uh, Steve has put together there. Uh, yeah, thinking not only of of these small authors, but of these uh, these charities as well. So yes, it's it's, it's unique in its uh, in its stance, I think, and. I think we're all lucky to have MX Publishing as part of the Sherlockian world because of uh, the benefits all around. And obviously, uh, the benefits are to the readers and, and listeners to some of these stories as well. Yeah, and it, it changed my life personally because, uh, you know, you can point out certain things in your life where you took a turn or took a chance or whatever. And when I emailed Steve to see about republishing my first book with him, I had no idea where all this would lead or that I would be writing other things or these edited projects or whatever. So um, as, as I've mentioned to you before, I kind of live in a remote part of the country in terms of Sherlockian activity and that there is none here. And so without uh, having this opportunity or these books and my association with MX to kind of dip into the Sherlockian sandbox, you know, like I said, just getting in touch with him and him giving me all these chances and saying yes when I had different ideas has personally changed my life. Oh, that's remarkable. And, you know, when you think about it, the state of Tennessee almost looks like a long cigar. Oh, uh, it you is. Could, you could form like the Trichinopoly Club or something. And uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I live in the extreme eastern end up next to the Smoky Mountains. And a few weeks ago, I had to go to an engineering conference in Memphis at the far end. You know, it's literally an all day drive and uh, through all sorts of different regions from mountain to plateau and then sloping down to the Mississippi River. So it's it's a strange state. There's a lot here. Hmm. Well, it's a strange, the world of Sherlock Holmes is a strange state, too. And, and it's mm -hmm. all richer, David, for everything you've added to it. It's just, just immense and um, valuable, just as we've talked about, not only in entertaining readers, but also contributions to Undershaw and other things like that. It's uh, really fabulous. Well, thank you. I, I'm just having a ball, and uh, still, after ever how many years, I'm still enjoying it. Well, uh, for those who are interested in David's work, we've got links in the show notes, but you can find his work and works that he's edited, obviously, uh, authored and edited, uh, both on mxpublishing.com and belangerbooks.com. And um, I should mention just before we, we head off here, David, that uh, you have gotten a number of starred reviews in Publishers Weekly for the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, have, have you have you tallied them up? How many are you up to now? <laughs> Steve MX could tell you. Uh, I don't know exactly because I've kind of lost track. They were uh, reviewing and, and generally giving starred reviews for every edition, every book, but uh, they kind of pulled back. So if we had a three-book simultaneous set, they would only pick one of those books and review it and, and give a, a rating on on their website or in their magazine or whatever. So um, Steve would have more specific information about that, but uh, I'm very grateful for those. And also that the reviewers kind of call out uh, different authors who have written different stories and specifically mention them because that's pretty great for them too, just to suddenly wake up one day and find out that they've been mentioned in Publishers Weekly. Well, we for one are certainly appreciative of your furor scribendi <laughs> with regards to uh, Sherlock Holmes. So, David, keep up the great work, 
And uh, thanks again for joining us on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you. Like I said, I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to seeing you in person again soon. Yes. David is an entire industry. It's really grand to talk to him. And I had no idea that he was, well, I guess I'd forgotten, because of course I knew this somewhere along the line, that he was a civil engineer. But how interesting it would be, you know, to read more about Sherlock Holmes and the underground infrastructure of, um, of London. And I'm sure that's a factor in some of the things that he's written. You know, I have yet to meet an uncivil engineer. Um, they're, they're usually very polite like that. Um, well, many no, of them are. Many of them it, are. It, it's interesting because, you know, obviously the, uh, the tube was a fairly recent invention by the time Sherlock Holmes uh, was around. But you have these, you know, the, the underground plays a role in at least the Bruce Partington plans. Um and and I think, if I'm not mistaken, some of uh, William Gillette's play takes place in oh, some in a, kind of... It's a gas chamber, though. A gas chamber. Okay. There yeah. you go. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think, you know, taking Sherlock Holmes through the sewers of London uh, in pursuit of uh, some criminal might be uh, a fascinating way to approach things. Hmm. Hey, I hear you over there. You must be scratching your head wondering what's new with our friends at MX Publishing. Well, let me tell you, if you don't go to their website often, it is worth a visit because I can tell you just this summer we've had a number of publications like The Recollections of Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Hall. Sherlock Holmes, A Question of Time by Glenn Searfoss. Sherlock Holmes, A Study in Illustrations, Volume 4 by Mike Foy. And Oscar Slater, A Killer Exposed by Brenda Rossini. But coming up, there are at least five books that are going to be released in September, as well as, gosh, another six or seven in October. Everything from... Nessie's Nemesis, Sherlock's Secretary, Book Two by Chris Chan, Sherlock Holmes, Tales of Darkness by Paul D. Gilbert, Sherlock Holmes and a Tale of Greed by Daniel D. Victor, Sherlock Holmes, The Devil's Disciples by Richard Ryan, A Study in Statecraft by Orlando Pearson, and many, many more. Just get over to mxpublishing.com and check out their new books to see exactly what fits your appetite today. what that means. That's right, it's everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. It's Canonical Couplet, where we give you two lines of poetry, and you give us your best guess as to which Sherlock Holmes story we were talking about. If you were with us last time, you remember, we gave you this clue. From this important record, it appears that Holmes was pretty good at 60 years. 
<laughs> Bert. Yes, yes. I have to. I I have why? to do this. Why, but why do you have to do? Well, it's <laughs> partially because everyone has come to expect it. Oh. Not necessarily because I want to hear the answer. <laughs> let's face it. Uh, do you know the yes, answer? Yes, of course. The, of course, I. Oh, this is oh. this is a case. You know that over the years people have really misunderstood. It's the case where. A landlady comes to Holmes and Watson complaining about the fact that her lodger would never leave the room, and Holmes has to use a mirror to discover that the lodger was really a disguised old eccentric. It's the case Watson called the veiled codger. <laughs> oh, I... I do have to give you at least three and a half points for creativity. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, but we'll end there. No. Um, no. Um, no, incorrect, obviously. No, um, no. The good news is, once again, our pal Eric Deckers has come to the rescue. He says, I'm really cooking now. Do it. This is the story that inspired the catchphrase of the Muppets Swedish chef and his culinary adventures. It's the story Watson called Sure the Cheeky Cheeky and Fernie Hig. Bork bork bork. Oh <laughs> wait. I got I got that confused with the story of Von Bork in his last bow. That's an easy mistake to make. Oh dear. How did he spell that? I, I uh, would like. Could you put that link in the show notes? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, it's funny, as as I looked to see if I could find any non-copyrightable music um you know any 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 royalty-free music that i might be able to use as a backup here i could not find it um and as a matter of fact the muppets in 1978 uh did copyright the swedish chef theme song and i went to look at the lyrics to see what the lyrics were mm. and it's all just uh swedish gibberish so <laughs> swedish sounding gibberish so, not actual words. Yeah. Um, but but uh, Eric was indeed correct, and we have a number of other people who also participated here. So we're going to pull out the big prize wheel and give it a spin. Watch it go around. Coming down to land on number... 18, number 18, and that looks like it is Carol Berger. <laughs> Carol, congratulations. We do have a prize to send your way. We, uh, I think we promised the Sherlock Holmes mug, so uh, that will be on its way to you. Uh, before you can say, bork, 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 I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. Um, I've already, I've already uh, said bork, bork, bork. I know, right? Uh, okay, well, uh, let's get around to giving people the clue for this particular episode. It's better, lads, to stay at home and cram than pilfer questions on the Greek exam. If you know the answer to this episode's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at iHeroSherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If your answer is correct and it's chosen at random, you'll win. Good luck. 
All right. Well, uh, and this time I think we'll we'll have a prize. It'll be one of uh, one of David Markham's books from MX Publishing. Oh, that's that a good idea. Enough. Very good idea. All right. Well, uh, I think uh, this is the portion of the program where we promise people some news updates. Very official, and now, now, now you know it's news because we have a theme song. So, um, since the last time we were around here, there were a few uh, developments I thought that were worth talking about. Um, the first one I have up on my board is that uh, the Crooked Man, Adventure of the Crooked Man, uh, the manuscript for that was auctioned in July by hmm. Sotheby's and uh, it was uh, we'll have a link to the listing of the manuscript on Randall Stock's website bestofsherlock.com um, this is uh, a manuscript that was written approximately 1893 it's not signed or dated but that is the uh, date it was given this is from uh, the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes uh, the uh, loose sheets of the manuscript housed in a red cloth portfolio with gilt titles on the cover is The Adventure of the Crooked Man, mm. uh, written in South Norwood by Conan Doyle. The presale estimate was $35,000 to $50,000, and um, the manuscript did sell. It, it reached its minimum. It sold for... $75,000 plus uh, hammer price p- premiums, which would have brought it up to $95,250 mm, wow. for the crooked man. You're going to get a big credit card bill. Well, I wish <laughs> I had gotten this. This is, this is the story from which my Sherlock Holmes, uh, my, my Baker Street Irregulars investiture was taken. I'm uh, Corporal Henry Wood, uh, who is, of course, the crooked man. Yeah. But... Uh, even more relevant, this is uh, the story where there's a conversation between Holmes and Watson that contains Sherlock Holmes's most famous quotation. Excellent, I cried. Elementary, said he. <laughs> so imagine being able to have that page and frame it. Uh, in your uh, in your collection, or or to to pull it out and show people as part of your your manuscript collection. Mm, mm. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, in other well, news, there's a there's a great series starting at the the Jewel of Philadelphia, the Rosenbach, the Rosenbach Library. Doctor Rosenbach, whom we've discussed with Stephen Rothman and many other people over the years, on this program was very committed to mystery and crime literature. He corresponded with famous Sherlockians. He wrote back and forth with Christopher Morley. He once purchased Conan Doyle's personal crime library. And so the Rosenbach has done a great number of wonderful things over the years about their Sherlockian holdings, about the character Conan Doyle, about Gothic fiction. And our Ed Pettit, who's also been on... Um, this show in the past. I remember I interviewed Ed at least once for an, for an earlier program. But they are beginning uh, Sherlock Mondays on the 18th 
of September. And they are going to continue discussing on Sherlock Mondays with Ed Pettit and a rotating group of co-hosts. They will do a conversational, what Ed describes as a conversational annotation about each story. They'll provide context, some insight about Conan Doyle, about Sherlock Holmes. And once a month, they'll also have a special guest to talk about a different Sherlockian topic. So it's a whole series, a weekly event here for 90 minutes every week, beginning September 18th, beginning 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time um, for this recurring review of the world of Sherlock Holmes. And it's uh, it's really a wonderful thing. And it's going to run until April 2024. Wow. So you can register and enjoy and participate in that. Now, it's virtual, by the way. It's uh, you, don't, you don't need to be on-prem. You can uh, go to the link in the show notes and register. Well, I, my invitation to speak has uh, must have gone missing. <laughs> the missing three quarter. You only got a quarter of your invitation to speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and uh, it looks like, uh, according to my notes, uh, Ed Pettit was on episode one nineteen. It was uh, kind of a uh, a Janus type of uh, episode, dual headed. One conversation with Ed. One conversation with Lindsay Fay. Oh, oh, right, right. I remember that. I, I also was not invited to speak, but I did get a personal note inviting me to listen. So I thought that oh. was thoughtful. Well, that's yeah. the next best thing. And that's yeah. what we have for our, uh, for our listeners as well. So we'll have that, well, the link to episode 119 and the link to the uh, Sherlock Mondays in the show notes as mm. well. And then finally, uh, kind of sad news uh, from... The entertainment world, Ellen Fitzhugh, a lyricist from The Great Mouse Detective, died at uh, the age of 81. Uh, she had, uh, I guess uh, the cause was lung cancer, but she was uh, a well-regarded lyricist and librettist. And uh, she died earlier this summer. She had uh, earned a best original score, uh, a Tony, for the 1985 Broadway musical Grind, mm. which was uh, directed by Hal, uh, Harold Prince. And uh, she actually uh, also earned uh, an Emmy nomination for music and lyrics for a song, Start Where You Are, from the series Shining Time Station. Must have missed that one. Um, but of course, Sherlockians will remember her work in The Great Mouse Detective, uh, the uh, Disney version of Eve Titus's Basil of Baker Street. Uh, she collaborated with Henry Mancini for that score and those songs. And uh, songs included The World's Greatest Criminal Mind uh, and Goodbye So Soon, which was uh, performed by Vincent Price. So uh, I guess we have to say goodbye so soon to... Uh, to Elizabeth Fitz, uh, excuse me, to Ellen Fitzhugh. Um, hmm. But we thank her for her conversation, her contribution to the world of Sherlock Holmes, and we have those delightful songs from the Great Mouse Detective to remember her by. Yes, yes. Well, Shining Time Station. I remember Shining Time Station because. Do you? Yeah, yeah. That was um, the way I think 
Thomas the Tank Engine first came to America. Um, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine eventually became sort of its own property, but my memory is, and that had, um, I think Ringo Starr, if I remember correctly, was, uh, wow. was the, uh, was the, uh, conductor or the, the, uh, see, any, but he was a character in, um, I think in Shining Time Station. Yeah, you know, when my kids were young, we would watch Shining Time Station. Well, he's a character in real life too. Um, I just, <laughs> I have to warn you with peace and love. <laughs> well, I, I think that'll wrap up our news segment here, Bert. Um, unless there's something else that's uh, on top of your uh, your mind. No, no, there are society meetings coming up, um, you know, on the East Coast, which are the things I know most, most about, but all over the place. There's not a day goes by without some Sherlock Holmes activity someplace, somewhere. Indeed. Well, this is the active Sherlockian, Scott Monty. <laughs> and I'm the over-participating Burt Wolder. And together, we say... The, the game's, games a foot. A foot. The game's a foot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.